Well, thank you, worship team, for leading us this morning. It's wonderful to praise the Lord with all of you, and it's good to be back here with Calvary Church. And I hope you really enjoyed uh, Pastor Rombo's preaching last week from Psalm 19. So let me uh, pray and let's look at God's Word with Him. We're back in Luke this morning. Oh, Lord Jesus, Your name is beautiful, and we want to see Your glory from the Scriptures this morning. And so we ask, Lord, Holy Spirit, that you would reveal Jesus' glory to us as we read, as we ponder, as we speak, as we listen, that we would adore you, Lord Jesus, as our eternal Savior. Amen. So what do you think of when you think of the word piety? Maybe you've never heard of the word before, but many of of you probably have. Piety, it's an old word, piety. And we usually think of this word in the terms of some context of religion. And sometimes it's used as a derogatory term. Um, We want to make fun of religious people that we don't like. We call them pious. And uh, and surely that can happen. You know, religious people, we can degenerate sort of in our sinful nature. and, And our piety that we thought was true piety just really ends up becoming pharisaical. And, uh, and hopefully we can see that in ourselves when it happens. And Jesus, of course, pointed this out repeatedly in his gospel, this false piety that people have. But piety is also a very positive term. Maybe it's used more so this way. It's a very simple term. It just simply refers to a pious person is someone who is faithful to God. They're faithful to God in their re- religious activities and worshiping Him and praying to Him and reading His Word and, and pious in terms of doing the good deeds that He's called us to do in the world and loving people and having compassion on them to share the gospel with them. We also, talks about, we also talk about acts of piety, doing acts of piety. And it's usually thought of in these two dimensions where we would praise God, that's a pious act, praying is a pious act, you know, all these coming to church might be a pious act for you. We also talk about doing acts of charity for other people. Usually when we're talking about uh, those acts of piety or acts of charity, often somewhat they're done in a distant way uh, when we do those acts. And I could be wrong, but it seems to me that when we talk about piety so much, the word tends to have a cold attachment to the word. And that we, we do our acts of piety toward God as just sort of duties. And our acts of devotion toward other people and compassion sometimes are just sort of done at a distance. We've done our good deed for the day. Not always, but often that's the case. But in the biblical terms, a true piety is going to have a warm heart for God. And a joyful smile on our face as we spend time with the Lord. And all of our religious duties toward Him and acts of devotion are filled with joy and love. And as we minister to other people in the name of Jesus Christ, our hearts are filled with compassion. And we're eager to have a warm relationship with those people that we're seeking to serve. So please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 5, verse 27 through 39. And we're going to learn about... Jesus' new and radical mission. And so we're back in our study of the gospel according to Luke. And Jesus is going to show us this morning in this passage that the new true piety involves seeking out sinners and calling them to repentance with the gospel. 
The true new piety that he brings seeks out sinners and calls them to repentance in the gospel. And so in our storyline this morning, Luke records the calling of Levi as one of Jesus' disciples, and then the subsequent fallout from that event, this discussion on fasting and many other things that come up. This passage shows us the authority of Jesus and His power. In verses 27 to 32, we learn that Jesus makes disciples out of great sinners. And in verses 33 to 39, Jesus makes spirituality, true spirituality, truly spiritual. Now, so far in the Gospel of Luke, we've been looking at, most recently, the early, very early portion of Jesus' ministry in Galilee, and we've uh, specifically seen him show grace to some unusual people, a person possessed by a demon, a person very, very sick, a leper getting healed, a paralytic being healed, and next today in our story, Jesus is going to go after another one of those outcasts, a tax collector. And as with the last story and the healing of the paralytic that we looked at, the antagonists in the story the Pharisees and the scribes, the opponents of Jesus, they add a lot of color to the story, and they themselves teach us truths that we need to understand. Now, this story of the calling of Levi is, was a very famous story because it's recorded also in Mark chapter 2. You can read it there. You can also read it in Matthew chapter 9. And these stories about the calling of Levi show us one more step in Jesus' process now at the beginning of his ministry in calling the twelve to himself. And he'll show us that this true new piety that he brings actually seeks out sinners and calls them to repentance with the gospel. So first, let's uh, watch Jesus as he makes disciples out of great sinners. So our outline here in verses 27 through 32, we're going to read it as we go along, as I like to do with stories so that we can observe the details as they are unfolded before us in Scripture. So in verses 27 and 28, we have the calling, the leaving, and the following of Levi. That's all happening there. And then in verses 29 to 32, we see evangelizing, we see partying, and we see a controversy brewing. It's a very exciting passage. So, verses 27 to 28, a lot happens. So, verse 27 and 28, after this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. There's a relationship here to the story right before it about the paralytic who's healed and his sins are forgiven. And of course, that was the main point, wasn't it, of that passage. If you look back in verse 20, Jesus says to the man immediately, your sins are forgiven you, in verse 20. And then in 24, he talks again about how your sins are forgiven and the Son of Man has authority to do this. Well, Jesus is going to be doing the same thing in this story to a despised tax collector named Levi, the son of Alphaeus, also known as Matthew. Now, Levi is a lower-level tax collector than another tax collector you might be familiar with. Somebody will be introduced to later in the book of Luke, that's Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was the chief tax collector, but Levi is a low tax collector. You can tell that because he's stuck in a booth. Did you notice that? He's in a booth. And so maybe he's collecting toll, maybe he's collecting custom taxes, maybe he's even selling licenses. Who knows what he's up to? But these tax collectors that we're introduced to in the gospel are Jewish people who are actually out there collecting taxes for the Romans. So as you can imagine, they're quite unpopular with their fellow countrymen. 
and families. I mean, they're ashamed to their family to say that your son is a tax collector. And they would be banned from the synagogues at this time. And tax collection also under the Roman Empire at this time in this region was not very well regulated. And so tax collectors would bid for their positions in the structure and they could collect whatever they could get. And so the system is filled with all sorts of what we would call abuses today, fraud and graft and many other things. Now Mark in his gospel tells us that Jesus was teaching on this particular day by the Sea of Galilee. And he comes up to the tax booth and he purposefully picks out Levi and calls him to join him. The words here are, are very simple. Did you notice how quickly we move along? Jesus saw. It means he sought out, actually. It was intentional that he looked at him. And he said, follow me. And then Levi simply leaves everything. And then he follows him. Now, just so you know, Jesus didn't walk around speaking in one-liners. No, that's not what he did, okay? So he had normal conversations with people. But it's recorded this way because it's emphasizing to us yet again a, a theme we've already noticed in Luke, and that is, at a word, whatever Jesus says happens. And that's what's happening in this story as well. And it's also quite likely that Levi had already been introduced to Jesus, he'd heard about him, maybe even had contact with Jesus before this day. But like Peter and Andrew and James and John, so now with Levi or Matthew, he follows in the same radical pattern that we were introduced to in chapter 5, verse 11, where it says they brought their boats to land and they left everything and they followed him. Now, Levi had also been given this special calling amongst the twelve and would deserve top priority in his life. And back when we were looking at the calling of the other eventual apostles, we talked about how this relates to our calling at a different level in following Jesus. But leaving everything for Matthew, or Levi here, obviously doesn't mean selling off everything, because in a few moments he's going to be throwing a pretty big party, and he takes money to do that in his own house. Um, it's a way of saying here that he was fully committed to this radical new mission that Jesus had called him on. And he would use everything that the Lord had given him and willing to do whatever it would take to fulfill the mission that Jesus has called us on. And it's similar with us, that God has given us everything that we have, and we're to use it as good stewards. We are to enjoy it, to enjoy it, and to use it for the extension of the kingdom of God. But for Levi, he would quit his lucrative job eventually and become a full-time follower of Jesus and become an apostle. Well, then the storyline continues in verses 29 to 32 with evangelizing, partying, and a controversy. <clears throat> and Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now it's not exactly clear how closely after this calling, this party takes place, but probably very soon afterwards. And so Levi invites his colleagues and his friends um, all those disreputable types of people that he hangs around that don't really care about the pious laws of the Jewish people. They're the kind who didn't really care a whole lot about righteousness, as we learn from the other Gospels as well. Flagrantly immoral people, thieves, liars, prostitutes, the list goes on. But you see, Levi wants to introduce all his friends of his 
to this Jesus that changed his life. And maybe he could change theirs too. He doesn't want to cut off his relationships with these people suddenly, although certainly his relationships will change over time. But right now, here is a key opportunity to witness to these people. Now the question would be, would Jesus go to a party like this? I mean, what about his reputation amongst the religious self-righteous types and the religious leaders? Would you go to the party? We all know the answer that we're supposed to give. Of course we would go to the party. But would we really be willing to risk the reputation? Well, later on, Jesus would say about himself, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say about him, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax gatherers and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by its deeds. He's also implying here that everybody who follows him is going to end up bearing the same type of reproach and unfair criticism from those who are self-righteous, probably even gain a similar reputation as Jesus would someday. But aren't you glad that Jesus befriended you when you were a sinner? And most likely, for many of us, he did it through one of his own, one of his own disciples, followers of Jesus, who was willing to spend time with you, to spend time with me as a sinner. Aren't you glad that they did that? You know, there's a whole lot more to come on this topic in Luke. Just wait till we get to Luke 7. It gets very radical. But we'll save that for them. Now, we don't know how successful this party was at the time as far as, I mean, surely people heard the gospel very clearly, but the most successful part about this party that we know about is it stirred up a religious controversy. Well, that's, that's, that's progress. I mean, sometimes that's the funnest part of these types of controversies, kind of situations that controversies start it's almost as much fun, and it's an excellent teaching opportunity for the disciples. You know, it's likely that this altercation that starts in verse 30 when the Pharisees and scribes grumbled at his disciples took place after the party sometime, not during it. Well, the, fri the, fri the Pharisees and scribes, we were introduced to them last time, they're grumbling. That's what self-righteous people do. They're grumbling to Jesus' disciples about the rabbi's behavior. I mean, he can't be a good rabbi if he hangs out with tax collectors and other sinners because there, go all, there goes his credentials. There goes his integrity. Now, of course, they miss the fact that Jesus isn't participating in all their sinful activities. He's not necessarily even accepting their lifestyles. And you think about Jesus showing up at a party like that. I mean, two things that are probably going on as he interacts with people. On the one hand, he's a very attractive figure because he loves people. Because he's compassionate. Talks to people. And on the other hand, he's probably a very scary figure because he's holy and he's perfect and he goes around teaching about righteousness. It's sort of an odd mixture, but people would love to hang out with Jesus because he was attractive and scary at the same time. And it's possible to do that, you know, to be intentionally intimate by eating and drinking with people who are not like us. But, you know, for the self-righteous Pharisees, this is just too close of an association for these religious leaders to accept as acceptable. 
But you know, it's always been that way in the history of redemption. So really nothing new here. It's just taken to a new level. Anyway, Jesus is probably nearby when this conversation is going on and they're, they're attacking and they're saying in verse 30, the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And then Jesus interrupts the conversation and makes his statement. And he quotes a common proverb about a physician and a sick person, healthy and sick people. And he applies it as a metaphor to the righteous who are healthy right, and to the sinners who are sick. Those are the categories. And you know, this explains why Jesus spent so little time with the religious leaders. Because they would be a waste of his time. I mean, on the one, I mean, he's not approving of their righteousness, of course, because it's not really there. They just think it's there. But if they think it's there, well, then let them be happy and go on their way. But the self-righteous need to, need to learn as well. And Jesus' sarcasm is a means of grace. Sarcasm can be a means of grace to people. But he's not going to spend time with these people, these, these types of people, until they start seeing their own sin and how they really actually need Jesus to save them. Well, then he would love to have a conversation with them. Notice how Jesus declares that he has come. He's come from heaven. This is the eternal Son of God who's become incarnate like one of us, and he's ministering among us. He declares that he's come to call. That was his purpose, to come to call, to invite many people, and of course, specifically, to call out those that he's chosen. And Jesus declares that he's come to call out not the righteous, meaning not those people who think they're righteous. And of course, he's being sarcastic because these people think they have nothing to repent of. Have you known people like that? Hopefully, it's not you. He doesn't consider the leaders here, of course, righteous enough for heaven. However, they were probably more righteous than other people if you just want to compare on a human level, but that doesn't really get you that far because it's not going to get you into heaven. They needed the righteousness that Jesus would live out. And so Jesus declares that he's come to call sinners to repentance, meaning those who know that they're sinners, those who sense that they're sinners. And these might be people that are quite degenerate. And of course, others too, people in the middle, who rightly view their sin for what it is and that they know at the core of their being that they're a sinful human being and that it just works its way out in so many different ways in their life. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no one righteous, not one in this world. That's why Jesus would say later on in Matthew 21 to other religious leaders of the day, Truly I say to you, that the tax gatherers and harlots will get into the kingdom of God before you. Now, don't overlook what's unique to Luke here. Uh, it's assumed in Mark and Matthew, but Luke is the only one that says to repentance. Calls them to repentance. And Luke points this out because that's the nature of finding salvation. It's a prerequisite. Conversion has two pieces to it. Repentance from sin, turning away from it, and faith, putting your faith, turning to Jesus Christ as the one who can save your soul. This is what Jesus said to Levi and to all his friends too. He doesn't leave sinners in their sin, but he exposes sin and calls us to repent of it. I mean, what a poor physician, to stick with the metaphor, what a poor physician of souls Jesus would be 
if he did not, could not, or would not heal sinners of their sin. So Jesus makes disciples out of great sinners, and only he can do it. Now, I often will tell you a few stories from some trips I've been on. So a while ago, I took some trips to East Asia on mission trips. And uh, one of the strategies that we used, or little tactics, rather, was to hold Matthew parties. Matthew parties. It's based on this passage. We would hold Matthew parties. And so basically, as once a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ, we just say, hey, how about we have a party and you can invite all your friends? And then when we have the party, then you can tell them what just happened to you. And it's a great way to find out if they are really committed to Jesus, if they want to tell their friends right away. And talk to them about the gospel of salvation. It's a great way to disciple people initially in this transition and getting them out of the old life and into the new. So what's a Matthew party? Well, it's a really very simple concept. I mean, you just saw it in action in in the gospel of Luke. So after a person comes to saving faith in Christ, they trust in him based on his cross and resurrection, they're saved from their sins, then you challenge that person to throw a party for their friends and maybe more than one because more parties are better than one party. And you have multiple parties with multiple groups of friends and these are people with whom this person has some influence, some clout relationally. And it's probably going to be people, hopefully it's people, that have been participating in the sinful activities that this person has just gotten saved out of. That would be ideal. The point is to host a party with a purpose, and that is to share about Jesus and who he did and what he's done in their life. I mean, most of the friends of these people who've been recently saved are curious anyway because they've been noticing something's really weird with John, my friend. He's so different than he used to be. I wonder what's up with him. And then, of course, you can invite a, you know, somebody a little more mature in the faith, a Bible study leader, a disciple, or a pastor along to help. But at some point in the conversation, you have the new Christian share their testimony of salvation and how they came to Christ. And then the more mature Christian can talk about the gospel in even deeper ways. Well, our God has been pleased to save many people through these Matthew parties that we would host over there. And many people show up and many people hear. And one reason they're so successful, you probably already guessed it, is because it approaches sinful people at a relational level. Not just at a truth level, but at a relational level. And it's filled with compassion. And also the forthright display and description of what the gospel really is and who Jesus is. And that's why it works out. Jesus shows us in this passage that we're looking at that his true new piety, which will become clear why we're using this in a moment, he seeks out sinners and he calls them to repentance with the gospel. I want to encourage you to go out and hang out with people that are not like you. That's where people, those are the people who need to be saved. Well, the next episode shows us that Jesus is making the spirituality that they're used to into a true spirituality in verses 33 to 39. Now, we don't know when this next section fits in chronologically to the episode we just finished, but it's related, definitely. There's more to the story than just this party at Levi's house. I mean, Jesus now, as you already know, has become quite a controversial figure. Um, He's on the radar of these religious leaders. They tend to show up more and more at events because they're checking him out. And they don't like his impious behaviors, and so they're finding ways to go after him. And so in our passage here, then, verses 33 to 35, 
There's a discussion about fasting, and then there's an analogy that's given. And then in verses 36 to 39, there are two parables that are told, and it ends with an irony. So first, fasting and analogy in verses 33 to 35. So when they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. So a lot of people have a lot of questions for Jesus because he is displaying this very unconventional piety. And Luke uses the proverbial they in his passage as he starts this story, or maybe he means the Pharisees and scribes. Matthew, as he tells the story, he picks out John's disciples in the storyline. And Mark focuses on all the people. So the question is brought up in regard to fasting because it's a central act of Jewish piety at the time. And one key element in this question to notice is that John's disciples, John the Baptist, Remember him? He was leading that revival out in the wilderness. His disciples and the Pharisees and scribes and their disciples are in agreement on something. They're on the same page. They're normally enemies, but they're all involved in fasting. The point is is that even John's disciples, I mean, we understand, Jesus, why you might be against the Pharisees because we don't always like what they say either, but John? So, Maybe Jesus missed a feast, a fast day or something. Who knows? Fasting occurred on the Day of Atonement and four other days. A little brief history here. But the Pharisees at this time also kept regular days of fasting. And so they taught that Mondays and Thursdays were days of fasting. And anyone who was spiritual would do that with them. If you were really zealous, especially rabbis, you're going to fast on Mondays and Thursdays. And then certainly John's disciples would be fasting, because you remember what his revival was based upon. It was mourning over our sin and repenting and looking forward to the day when the Messiah would show up. And then, of course, Jesus fasted. We've already seen that in the Gospel of Luke. He fasted for 40 days. In fact, Jesus will teach on it. And, uh, and so perhaps he and his disciples, maybe they missed a special day. They didn't keep a regular public prayers as they should be doing. Well, it was becoming well known that Jesus and his followers were not keeping the religious lifestyle that the general populace were used to and that the religious leaders were teaching. Instead, Jesus and his disciples were out eating and drinking with sinful people, not fasting and praying. And you can believe it, they even did it on Mondays and Thursdays, of all things. You could at least do it on a Tuesday. So Jesus did this, and not necessarily because it was more right than what he was doing, or they were less so, but it's to draw attention to himself, as he would often do, so that he could teach things. And he's pointing to the gospel of salvation that's way more important. Well, Jesus provides an analogy to make his point even more clear. He says fasting is generally associated with mourning, sadness. And so that would be very inappropriate at a wedding day. Right? You wouldn't ask your guests to come to a wedding and don't eat anything. I mean, you feed them. And rather, a wedding time party is a time to feast. And Jesus, you know the analogy. 
We bring it up many times in the Gospels and throughout the Bible, actually, that Jesus is the bridegroom. That's the old term for just groom. So Jesus is the groom. And all of his attendants are his disciples. And John the Baptist, of course, is the best man. And everybody who follows Jesus is a guest at the party. So we're all involved in in the analogy. And Jesus has come to marry his people. The prophet Isaiah speaks like this. Although, actually, it's really just an engagement party. Because the wedding day and the banquet and the consummation, that comes when Jesus comes back at his second return. Isaiah the prophet, the book of Ephesians, the book of Revelation speaks about this. So Jesus then very abruptly, and he strangely adds to this happy picture that he's painting about a marriage party, and he says, and what do you know? The groom is suddenly going to die, drops dead. So it was a very tragic, very sad, it would be a time of mourning. He's talking about, of course, when he would be crucified, and his followers at that time would mourn over his death, and they would give themselves to fasting. This first reference is pretty obvious, and the implication gets filled out elsewhere that fasting then is going to become transformed in the New Covenant. So after Jesus' resurrection, his followers, the bride, the church, would continue to fast, but in a transformed manner. It's not a fasting of mourning and sadness, but rather of one longing for one's husband, who's absent because the wedding has been delayed. And Jesus isn't here at the moment, he's in heaven. And we're waiting longer than expected for him to return for us. And so the church now fasts filled with joy because the wedding day is coming, with anticipation and with for asking for guidance in our lives and in our church. That's why we fast here in our lives today and the church does around the world and why we do at Calvary. The New Testament practice of fasting is one of serious spirituality, and it's something we'll study at some point down the road. But Jesus is telling these people to look up from your old covenant ways of fasting and look to me who brings the new piety, a transformed spirituality, a true spirituality in the new covenant. Well, he continues on then, with two parables and an irony in verses 36 to 39. So he also told them a parable. They're all saying the same thing in different ways. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he'll tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. So Jesus tells these two parables to explain further the old patterns cannot contain the new reality, the new piety, the things that he brings. And so there's the parable of the new cloth in verse 36. So what it means is this, it's very simple. No one takes a new piece, a new garment, and tears a piece off of it, just got it at the store, and puts it over a hole on an old garment because you want to patch it up. Rather, they would take a piece from another old garment to patch up an old garment. So Mark and Matthew talk about, in this, in this episode, about the issue of shrinking and then tearing away as you wash it. Uh, and so they're speaking from the perspective of the old garment, 
But Luke is taking the perspective of the new garment. And so it gets ruined right away. What a waste to tear a piece off of a new piece of clothing. That's foolish. No one does that. And as for the sake of the old garment, it's not going to match it anyway. And then they both end up being ruined. So the situation is actually worse than you started with because both garments are destroyed. So the point is the incompatibility of the new and the old patterns of piety. The ways of the old covenant cannot be combined with the ways of the new covenant. I mean, just look at the example that Jesus just gave about fasting and prayers. One cannot simply transfer religious lifestyle patterns from the old covenant to the new covenant. As if Jesus just came to make religion a little better. We must use the Holy Spirit in reference to Jesus Christ as the fulfillment in order to make all the proper, all the proper, trans, proper transpositions of piety for the new covenant. Jesus Christ isn't coming, did not come to patch things up with the problems of Jewish forms of piety. That's why he did not come to do that. Or to build on the old covenant as some kind of reformer of those patterns. In fact, one cannot stay Jewish in religion, but has to become a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ. And that's what the rest of the New Testament will teach over and over and over again. Then there's the parable of the new wine in verses 37 to 38. And the meaning here, of course, is no one puts new wine, which is still in the fermentation process. So you don't take that wine and put it into an old used wineskin that's no longer capable of expanding with this new wine. So wineskins at the time, they didn't use bottles back then like we do today, but it's a tanned hide uh, from a sheep or a goat, and they'd often use the neck piece as the neck of the bottle, sort of of like a bottle. And over time, it's going to just become brittle. And so if you do this, you put the new wine into the old wineskin, the old skin's just going to burst, and you'll lose the old wineskin, but who cares about that? You lose the new wine. So new wine has to be put into new wineskins, and Jesus is announcing that the time has come for a new wineskin because he's brought the new wine. The old forms of piety developed under the old covenant are insufficient to contain the new reality, the new age of piety. It simply will not work. New forms of spirituality are required because of the progress of redemption. The Messiah is here. Everything is fulfilled. And so the old wineskins here are referring to the established patterns of law-keeping based upon the old wine, the old covenant, the law, and the keeping of it. Not necessarily legalism, but it could include all that. But Jesus isn't rejecting the law or its piety in its proper time and place because the old wineskin had its purpose in its time. But Jesus is bringing it all to its proper end, to its fulfillment, and to its final joy. And whether or not one accepts Jesus reveals whether or not you've person has been keeping all those things in true faith or not, whether they accept him. In fact, in the keeping with the situation here, the brittleness of the old wineskin is showing its failure. Its failure. It did not make anyone righteous, as the book of Romans will talk about. It didn't justify anyone. Besides, the old covenant wine is already gone. It's been drunk already. There's nothing left. To extend the metaphor, 
it's time for new wine, and the new wine is Jesus Christ and His gospel. So, where are you going to put the new wine? Where are you going to put this new covenant? And it's in the old form or in the new one? And the new wineskin, then, is a new spirituality according to the way Jesus interprets Scripture. That's how you discover what it is. It's how Jesus interpreted Scripture and how His followers carried it out and how His apostles taught it in the power of the Holy Spirit. So the details, this is all sort of theoretical at the moment, but the details are going to become much clearer as we go along in the Gospel of Luke and as you read it in the New Testament. And there are a lot of these things that get changed. There's discussions. In fact, there's one in that chapter 6, the Sabbath. Luke 6, we'll learn that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath and He can do what He wants with it. The covenant, the law, the kingdom, tithing, people of God, etc. Everything becomes radically new because we live in a new age. Verse 39 is like a bonus parable. Notice that it says the third statement, and no one does this. Well, that's the third time we've heard no one. So it's a twist on what we've been talking about with the new wine and the old wine. And so no one, after drinking the old wine, desires the new. He just says the old is good enough. And so the statement is an ironic statement. He's not calling for any kind of tolerance for people that are slow to change or anything. He's talking about these these Jewish leaders and these Jewish people who don't want to accept him. Uh, They haven't even tried the new wine yet, and here they are saying, we don't need any of that stuff. We know the old stuff's good. That's what's going on here with this. It's a statement of irony. Who needs Jesus? I mean, we've already got the law and the temple and all these teachings. We know what righteousness is. And of course, most people are naturally conservative, and it may be just as stupid as it sounds here what they're saying, but, uh, but when it comes to Jesus, this isn't just some religious debate. This is a matter of eternal consequences. Are you going to accept Jesus and his new spirituality or not? So Jesus makes spirituality truly spiritual, and only he has the authority to do this. No one else can come along and make these changes. Only the eternal Son of God can do that. And again, as I mentioned, chapter 6, right away, the very next thing in the Gospel of Luke is another change. And Jesus will talk about that as he's Lord of the Sabbath. Now, the distance here between Jesus and the religious leaders, as you can see, is probably increasing by the day. Every time Jesus opens his mouth, it seems like the distance is getting farther between them. And his point, and as Luke is reiterating, is quite clear. Judaism cannot contain Christianity. One cannot force Jesus and his new covenant to fit neatly into the old covenant in some preconceived manner. Jesus is bringing in something new. He's not a reformer. He's a radical. He is not improving a system. He's bringing a new one. And this disjunction is radical. And the continuities that do exist is not one of just a simple parallel patching between the old and the new. The Old Covenant lifestyle was appropriate under the Old Covenant, but not in the New Covenant. It is completely inappropriate. The New Covenant lifestyle is the only one that is proper now. Well, that was a great party, wasn't it? Did you like Matthew's party? Lord Jesus has taken us into his new and radical mission. Jesus didn't conform to the traditional ideas of piety. He transformed it. And a major part of this transformation is in the area of living holy, separated lives to God, but not in a way 
that is separated from the people who need salvation. You see, that is a very common, all too common, should be an embarrassingly common problem of North American evangelicals. It's a big mistake to pull out of relationships with people that need Jesus and to not spend time with those people. Jesus did not model a separatist piety of fundamentalism. He modeled an engagement mentality of evangelicalism. He was genuinely, relationally engaging sinners because he loved them. And he still loves them. And that's why he hung out with them. Jesus taught us to take the gospel to people, not expect them to come and find us. To take the gospel to the people who are the despised and the downcast and our enemies, perhaps. Those who are lost in their sin and need help and need to hear about Jesus. We're not called to retreat from the world. And every once in a while, there's some loudmouth, misguided Christian who issues a call for this in the name of some kind of separation from the evil world. But in reality, it's done in self-righteousness usually and fear dedicated to some odd goal of preserving some particular way of life in the church or in a broader society. Well, don't listen to these misguided calls because they are coming from positions of spiritual weakness. It's not Jesus' position. I mean, all you have to do is look at the story. So look at the Pharisees. Look at Jesus. Who do you want to be like? Do you see the glory of God in calling great sinners? out to become great disciples? Nothing could be more exciting than that. So let's be more like Jesus and less repulsed by people who are great sinners and less fearful of those self-righteous people in the church and more engaged in the lives of people who need Jesus and are responsive to the gospel and are listening to you and wanting to learn more from you. Be a friend of sinful people. Don't separate from them. Be wise and be vindicated, just like Jesus said. Wisdom will be vindicated. Perhaps some of us this morning need to renew our commitment to a lifestyle of making connections and associating with people who need Jesus. It's so easy to get so wrapped up in just hanging out with people who are fellow Christians. Of course we do that, but we need to spend time with people who need Jesus. And remember, we're not out there because we're compromising or anything. It's because we want to display the true new piety that Jesus Christ brought into the world. So after all these weeks in Luke's gospel, you might be wondering, why does Luke talk about missions all the time? Well, you know, that's what happens when you hang around the Apostle Paul for most of your life. right? So Luke was a travel companion, if you didn't know, with the Apostle Paul. And so, of course... If you hang out with the greatest missionary of all time, that's what you're going to talk about. And that's going to be the emphasis of the gospel. And so there's no escape from this. Uh, The intense focus upon Jesus Christ's mission is going to last all throughout the gospel of Luke for us probably another year as we go through Luke's gospel together, although we'll take breaks here and there. But hopefully we'll all come to enjoy afresh the real heart of the New Testament which will come later on, Jesus will state it in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, when he said, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Amen.
May God bless his word. Well, this time, 